Chris, that's okay. You can apologize to our guest because I would still be here either way. Also named Kara or Kara. Yeah, that I haven't figured out. That's going to have to be actually our first question when we bring her on. Exactly. <laughs> because we're both used to one way now. What are you up to? So yeah, we talked about this a few shows back, I think, or at least like at least the social media explosion. Yeah. For the lab manual. I so tell our listeners what your lab manual is again. Right. So the lab manual was originally intended just for my niece, who turned six years old this past October. And way back in September, my brother told me my niece wanted new science experiments for her birthday. So I went online to look at all the pre-made kits and I didn't like them. So I decided to build a lab manual myself. At this point, it's now 28 experiments plus four holiday expansion packs. And for her birthday, she got the lab manual and then this giant Rubbermaid bin of all the supplies to do every experiment in that book several times. And as we talked about before, I posted a couple pictures of it on Twitter and it went like low-key viral. And I had to respond to like 1,200 direct messages giving that manual out. And then I worked with folks at Notre Dame at making a super compressed PDF so I could put it up on my website and make it easier to download and freely available to anybody and everybody who wants it. And then I contacted the graduate student group here in Science Policy Initiative, who I've been in touch with for SciComm things and whatnot since coming to this campus. And I said, hey, I made this thing. Do you want to somehow find money and mass produce not only the lab manual, but kits as well to distribute to local kids in maybe low income areas? And they're like, yes. And they have basically run with it. And we have gotten now like $9,000 from various internal grants. And currently my lab is a giant assembly line of a whole bunch of random materials being packaged into individual containers and putting them into backpacks to deliver to a school here. And even more awesome, this is actually the part I'm most excited about. The lab manual is, as we speak, being translated into Spanish because the kids that we're giving the kits to come from primarily Spanish-speaking homes where they don't speak English in the house, though they do in school. And so they will be given Spanish lab manuals along with all the supplies, and I'll be able to put up a Spanish version on my website that'll be freely available too. That is so cool. Yeah, and we hope to deliver all of it Wednesday so that the kids get it this Thursday and Friday before winter break. Nice. I'm super impressed by that. I've said it before, sometimes the outreach stuff that we do on accident becomes the most important thing mm -hmm. that we have done. So I'm really happy for you. I know that was awesome for your niece and- Everybody uh, who has kids at home, remote learning can yeah. now access this. And so it's really wonderful. Like I said before, when I got the opportunity to teach my kids anthropology in the classroom when they were young, I almost didn't do it because it seemed like extra work that I wasn't getting any credit for. And then I remembered you're doing this for the more important reason because mm -hmm. these are the people in your lives who you can have a direct impact on. And then it ended up being something that I do every single semester for the rest of my career and became even more profound. So that's super cool. Thanks. I wanted to also note for listeners that we'll have two weeks of book excerpts here in a few weeks. We're taking a short break and we have a few more, like we did this past summer, we have a few people who came in late in sending us um, an audio version of one of their books that they read for us so we can repost their podcast and have a little bonus content for our mm -hmm. listeners. And in theory, you and I have a break, but ask me what I'm doing for my break. What are you doing for your break, Chris? Starting a new podcast. Because of course you are. Because of course I am. So I got a wild hair up my ass to start a, a, a tattoo. Thank you. 
tattooing <laughs> research podcast. So the tattooing project that I've been doing for a long time, we branded it the Inking of Immunity. And after searching around a cool nifty title, we decided, wait a minute, we have a Twitter account, Instagram account, and a Facebook account already called Inking of Immunity. Why don't we just stick with the brand? So my new doctoral student, Mike Smetana, evolutionary psychologist in the UK, Becky Owens, and myself will be the three co-hosts. And on Thursday, we're going to interview Aaron Dieter Wolf. He's an archaeologist of tattooing. So that'll be our first episode. And right around the time that you and I take our break, that first episode should air. Well, that's probably good, balancing it for you as you get this one off the ground. Yeah, and what I'll probably shamelessly do is poke it into our feed also to sort of grab a built-in audience. But today, we're here today for uh, the poor human in our waiting room. Who is that? The poor human in our waiting room is Dr. Kara, possibly Kara Hoover, who is a professor of anthropology at the University of Alaska Fairbanks. She specializes in the evolutionary ecology of genetic variation within and among human populations and within the genus Homo. Her particular interest, however, is the human sense of smell, which is totally understudied, at least within anthropological realms, and the factors that shaped its evolutionary tuning as well as modern distribution of variation in human populations. She also coined the term sensory inequality, to describe the differential risk to olfaction seen in modern populations due to socioeconomics and race. And this ties into work on health inequalities and environmental racism. Sensory inequality. I know we're totally going to talk about that. Frick yeah. <laughs> so let's bring her on. There she is. Before we kick everything off, is it Kara or Kara? It's Kara. Okay, so you and I pronounce it the same. We're good. Oh, this good. is fun. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You're C, though, and I'm K. So growing up, did you find that any Karas you encountered were more commonly spelled with a C or a K? I never encountered any growing up. My my name became more popular once I was like in my 20s or 30s, and now it seems quite common. See, I still don't see very many, and all the ones that I have seen are K. And you probably also get this. Growing up, we never found our names on like the pre-personalized Things you find in gift shops. Yeah, exactly. I I have the same problem. (laughs) (laughs) Always spelled with a K. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's it. I never, everyone spells Christopher with a K and and no one ever has the biblical names on the keychains in the thing. That's terrible. Ever, ever. (laughs) Yeah, welcome to the show, Kara. Thank you so much for taking time out. And though we introduced you as being at the University of Alaska Fairbanks, which you are, you said you currently aren't physically in Alaska. So where are you right now? I'm in Lexington, Kentucky. I'm working remotely due to COVID. Very nice. So I was actually here on sabbatical and then I was on family medical leave and traveling back to Alaska in the midst of the pandemic wasn't a wise idea. So my letting everyone go where they want and do what they want and just being accommodating, which is great. Sounds like a good anthropological origin story, but let's start back at the beginning and get you up to that point. So Why don't you tell us about how you came to be interested in anthropology, how you then became a professional, and where your career has taken you. It sounds interesting. So I did an undergraduate major in social sciences, and we were able to take a variety of classes. So obviously I took classes in anthropology, and those were more cultural. It was a really cool guy, an Australian guy who brought in boomerangs and all kinds of neat stuff. And he grew up in the bush in Australia. You said cool, right? Not cruel? I heard cruel at first. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, cool. cool. You said boomerang. I'm like, that sounds cool. I think she said cool. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, he used to fly in a helicopter to get to school sometimes, like, you know, his homeschool part of it. It was crazy. So he had this really interesting 
background. I thought, oh, you know, he's the coolest member of the faculty. And anyway, I enjoyed taking his classes, but I didn't think about doing anything in anthropology. And I ended up getting into a religion grad program, random story. I won't even go into that. But my thesis was focused on the evolution of origin myths and world cultures, which was obviously already anthropological. And I decided I really should be doing anthropology. So I switched and then I took osteology and just fell in love with bioanthropology and kept on going down that path through to my PhD and obviously to where I am today. And so you study something really interesting, which is human olfaction and not just, you know, modern day us human olfaction, but also for our past ancestors. How did you get interested in kind of this specific line of inquiry within anthropology? Well, I've always been interested in human adaptation. That was my main focus throughout my master's and my PhD. And I was kind of looking at stress as a measure of adaptational success. And I thought, you know, but how do we ever actually figure out what to eat when we migrate to new spaces and places? Like, that's a big thing. You know what you're eating in your own environment when you move to a new place. It's just like when we travel to new countries trying to figure out what's okay to eat and what's not okay to eat. And I thought about it for a long time. And I was teaching evolutionary anthropology at Emory when I was there for one year as a visiting assistant professor. And I stumbled across this kind of neat fact about olfaction, that it's the sense that kind of lies under the radar, that you smell something and the information sent to very reactive parts of our brain before it gets sent to the thalamus. We don't really think about it the way we do with vision. It's already processed and sent when we get that entire visual package, whereas olfaction is occurring in various stages along the way before we actually think about it. So you smell something and you instantly have a memory evoked or an emotion evoked and then afterwards, you're like, oh, because that's this scent and that reminds me of this, you know, or you think about it. Why am I so hungry? Oh, it's because I'm smelling some really good food, right? So I thought that was really interesting. And I thought, well, that's got to have some kind of adaptive advantage when you move to a new place and you smell things that are familiar. And you're like, well, I used to eat that and this smells like that. So maybe I'll go ahead and eat that here. So I, one of the things that I found was interesting is that very few people in anthropology other than cultural anthropologists were focusing on human olfaction. And there were so many anthropologically based questions in terms of human biology and evolution that no one was addressing at all. And even when they were getting into like the waters of evolution, they weren't really contextualizing it correctly. They weren't using the right comparisons. They weren't thinking more broadly about ecology. So I just thought this is a completely untapped area to explore and kind of led me to where I am today with kind of multiple types of projects to explore it from as many angles as possible. So let's launch into some of those projects. Why don't you tell us, we know that you've got a piece in AJHP on testing a field method. We're interested in that, but I'm interested in where you're going with this research. It's fascinating. It's always neat when there's something that is super obvious that we've somehow failed to notice right under our noses, <laughs> as it were. Yeah, the paper that I did in AJHP. Sorry. <laughs> that was kind of an advanced effort to do field work on human olfaction. So on the one hand, we can look at the genetics of olfaction and they'll tell us certain things potentially based on what we know about perception in humans, kind of genotype phenotype studies of which there are very few, but we can at least look at genetics and first some things. And we can also test people in labs and see how their sense of smell performs and we can compare them. But there's very little field work done and there's very little connecting genetics to the perception to actual peoples and variation. So in order to actually do field work and broaden representation of data on perception, we needed to have a portable field method. So we thought, well, we'll just take advantage of my colleague who lives in London, which is a dense urban area with lots of pollution, lots of different types of environments, and we'll recruit people and we'll do little 
smell walks in the city where we test them at three locations and we give them mini lectures about our research. And, you know, we got a nice pool of people. We managed to recruit a couple of students to help us and we had a fun day out. But ultimately the method we use failed and it wasn't because it was something we developed. It's a commonly used lab-based method. So when you test human olfaction in the lab, you test people's ability to identify an odor. So you smell a lemon and you say it's a lemon, so you label it. You test their ability to discriminate between like odors. So you're given three odors and you pick the one that's different. And you're also given sensitivity testing where you increase the odor concentration until you are able to detect it. So the latter two are really complicated and they involve lots of odors, lots of these little magic markers that smell of things. And we thought, well, we'll just try the odor ID test. And there's a short one that they use five odors and then they can use that to assess your olfactory function. And we thought, perfect, we'll just go out, we'll do this. The problem is that test has a lot of idiosyncratic variation. So individuals have associations with specific odors. So in Europe, what we found when people smelled cloves was they all said it smells like the dentist's office because that's commonly used, I guess, either maybe in the treatments they use on teeth or anesthetic, I don't know. And so they were labeling things incorrectly, but ultimately they were labeling them correctly based on their experience. They just weren't identifying the actual source. So their scores were lower because of that. So we're like, well, okay, you know, we can maybe adjust for that. But the other thing is that some odors are more familiar to some people, less familiar to other people, and that varies cross-culturally. So what might work in Britain, and we did use odors validated in Britain, may not work in the Tanzanian bush. Like these people are not gonna know what a rose smells like because that's just not part of their environment, their culture. So that's another issue. And there's also issues with the labels that people choose and how consistent they are in their labeling. Will they use the same label time and time again? Are they familiar with the odors? These are the, the problems that we encountered when we were administering this test. And we felt that we weren't really assessing their ability. We were assessing something else. And we also were concerned that people were learning because they were given the same odors in different orders at each location. And even though we didn't tell them that, they figured it out. And they're like, oh, that's the rose again. Oh, that's the one that I like, but I can't identify. So we realized this wasn't a great tool. And you know, there have been lots of papers written about problems with odor identification as a tool. But in the lab, it works okay. But in a field-based setting, it's not going to work. And when you're doing cross-cultural field data collection, it's not going to work very well either. So it was fun. It was interesting. But we obviously are not going to be able to use that. Even if we were to validate like five odors in the field, it wouldn't really give us insights into the ability of a person to smell. It would just give us their kind of insights into how they think about smells. So I love this story for so, so many reasons. So the, the way you started off of just how you did this in England, where you would go out and find people in the street and give mini lectures and test their smell. Like that's the most amazing public facing science example I've heard in a really long time where you're including the education component along with the data collection. And I think that's fantastic. So one, I commend that. Two, this whole story about the cultural context of smell makes me automatically think about IQ tests and how completely invalid they are because of the cultural context in which people grow up and how important it is for people to understand that, like your example, there are not going to be roses in a certain part of Africa, so why would anyone know what a rose smells like? And I think that might be a much more accessible example or at least analogy to IQ tests for people who still think that they're like the epitome of intelligence gauging. But anyway, so a word that you used a lot or phrase you use a lot is we don't know or there's very little of. So why do you think that the study of the human sense of smell is so understudied? Why have people not been paying attention to this, particularly from an anthropological perspective? You know, the anthropological perspective has been cultural and they've come up with really interesting things. Like you were just saying, 
latching onto this idea of how we think about smells, there's been amazing cross-cultural data generated on words and vocabulary around smell, but not actually smell testing. So most of the people who study the sense of smell tend to be psychologists and neuroscientists, and they're interested either in brain reactions to smell on the neuroscience side or the psychophysics of it, you know, the, the smell testing. And as we all know, psychology is kind of in this modern crisis of replication and sampling and so on. And so most of the data come from weird populations. That's been changing a bit with this sniff and sticks test, which is what we use of scented magic markers. There's been some validations in Asian countries and um, pushing further into Eastern Europe and also the first ever one in Africa and South Kiva done by one of my colleagues, Patrick Belongwe. And that was really interesting because we have no data in Africa at all on smelling. And so he's a ENT and he was doing clinical testing in the lab. So it's not a field-based test, but it's still it's amazing. And he's like, I'm the only one in Africa doing this. And I thought, well, there, that's great. There's one person. So we're moving forward. But anyway, that was one of the big problems that psychology has had its own specific interests. And those clinical data are very useful, obviously, because they give us an idea of functioning in these particular societies and when a person stops functioning well. So they have their use. But when it comes to the kinds of questions we're interested in as anthropologists, they're extremely limited and the tools aren't very transferable, only know much about the ecology of smell. So I'm not really sure why it's been understudied. I mean, I think that certainly in the Western tradition, smell has been seen as a base sense in animal sense. Even in the review process of writing this paper, one of the reviewers commented that it's not important and you've got to mention Freud. And, and people have done that in smell-based papers in anthropology. I'm like, why would I talk about Freud? This is a psychoanalyst who has nothing to do with the science of smell. But this is people's reference point. They often think about Freud. They talk about Freud. And Freud wasn't the only one. So there is this intellectual tradition, certainly in the West, of denigrating the sense of smell, this focus on vision in the higher mind and smell as a base mind. There's actually a great paper written on it called, I think, The Neglected Sense of Smell. It's written by John McGann. He kind of goes through the intellectual history of how this came to be, why we overlook smell. I think that's probably going to change now because of COVID-19 and the widespread smell and taste loss. And people are now have experienced it and realize how important it is. Whereas just three years ago, there was a huge study done on senses and asking people, what would you get about cosmetics, your car, your passport, your sense of smell, the internet. And people always gave up sense of smell. I mean, even in favor of cosmetics, which shocked me. But I think now people are beginning to realize, you know, it's actually way more important than I thought. And there are obviously more people who are interested in understanding how COVID-19 is affecting the sense of smell. So it may be changing. I mean, it may be my own personal awareness of research, but I think there's probably going to be more people interested. I, hopefully there'll be more in anthropology because we definitely need more. I'll let Chris ask this question in a moment, but this just reminded me of like the awesome correlational studies that folks have just done on Yankee Candle reviews online and the COVID-19 pandemic of once the pandemic hit, Yankee Candle was all of a sudden getting all of these negative reviews about how there was no scent to their candles. Yes. And we were like, yeah, because you have the virus and you lost your sense of smell. Anyway, a hilarious side note, which is also a sad side note. Chris. Well, I was going to argue that there'll probably be an uptick in research because you're doing some cool research and attention will come to it and people will realize, duh, I don't discount the COVID hypothesis, but there's so much like the fire study that I do where we look at the relaxing effects of fire. It's such a ubiquitous sort of pop cultural thing that everybody says, yeah, there are so many people who spend a lot of money, frankly, on candles. There are whole stores <laughs> dedicated to scented candles that there will be 
a lot of interest. But I, I want to ask a two-pronged question, one based on your results and one based on my own pop cultural sense of it. You found a non-significant difference between males and females, which validates, I guess, either a scientific or a lay sense out there that women have a better sense of smell than men. That's certainly true in a sample of two between me and my wife and my household. I'm going to be gross here, but I wonder, like, as us hirsute people age, one of the places where hair tends to grow is our <laughs> noses and sort of clogs up that sensory mode. So I'm just being real here, and we are talking anatomy and physiology. So one, I wonder about why you think women may have a better sense of smell. And two, I also wonder if there's an inculturation of smell sensibility that you know anything about, like UK, US, Africa. Do we think certain cultures might entrain people developmentally to be more tuned into it and thereby develop a better sense? There's a lot I can say in response to that. <laughs> There's a lot of thoughts that are coming to mind. One interesting thing about the sense of smell in terms of sex-based differences and I say sex-based rather than gender because it was a really interesting paper examining the sense of smell in trans women taking gender-affirming hormone therapy, and their sense of smell did not change. So that suggests that even making a hormonal transition in terms of gender, that there's no impact. And there have been at least five studies on pregnant women demonstrating that their sense of smell does not change. Now they perceive it to, and this, this is the hard thing about smell because what you perceive you believe to be real because it's a sense and we believe our senses. However, when they're actually measured before, during, after pregnancy, their sense of smell performance measures do not change. But obviously perception has changed. So it does appear to be a sex-based difference. Females always outperform males on smell tests. And we found that in our sample too, that females tended to be more consistent in their naming because we did look at consistency. Even if you got it wrong and you didn't name orange as orange, you were consistent in saying the same thing. I think there might be very valid reasons for that. And we postulate a little bit in the paper, noting that we're going kind of far afield of our data, but we do postulate that it has a lot to do with female activities in the environment, that females are engaging certainly in an evolutionary setting in this highly human environment interactive lifestyle on a daily basis through foraging, hunting small game, et cetera, and probably also engaging in various societies and more domestic activities as well, a broader range of smells across a broader range of environments, and that this might be a smell-based training. So this is a question that I'm interested in and hope to do some field work with hunter-gatherers on, looking at hunter-gatherers living a traditional lifestyle and related groups that are settled down and living in a village. So the genes are the same, it's only been one or two generations, but the environment's very different to try to understand what the differences are. So picking up on this idea of entraining, as you're saying, within a culture, are we shaped by our environment to have a better sense of smell or better discrimination abilities and so on? So the limited data on some more traditional populations like the Shimani do suggest that they have better sensitivities, they're more sensitive to odors at lower concentrations than a Western society, but that discrimination is not as good. However, that could also be some issues that we talked about before about the odors that are used and the cultural relevance of those odors. So we don't have any really good data yet on understanding how populations vary. We just have lab-based data. So I think that there are reasons why women might have a better sense of smell, but the fact that it persists today in the environments that we find ourselves in may disrupt that hypothesis a little. However, I would still argue that women are doing more varied tasks than men, because as we've seen, especially during COVID-19, women are bearing more 
burdens and home in the domestic life as well as continuing their work, maybe even potentially going out more in the world than men if they're engaging in domestic activities like getting groceries and so on. I can make any strong arguments about, but I would say that women's activities are more varied than men's activities. In terms of whether there's an absolute biological difference, it's just not clear. There's just so much that's unknown about the olfactory system that there could be any number of things. You know, none of these genes are linked to reproductive sex. They're not linked to X chromosomes, Y chromosomes, et cetera. So we don't really see that kind of strong potential reproductive influence. I would imagine it's more behavioral and ecological than it is genetic. But, you know, maybe I'll get more data on it. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, so that's the question. Given what you've presented to us as there's a broad cultural differences in sensitivity, but also what smells people have experience with, how do you plan to move forward with this tool of testing sense of smell cross-culturally? How are you going to refine it so that it can be a little bit more broadly applied? Well, I do have a colleague who's created a series of tests that are odor mixtures. So he has a sensitivity test that's an odor mixture, and he has a um, discrimination test that's an odor mixture. So this would overcome some of the problems of odor familiarity because no one should be familiar with these mixes. And it should overcome some of the problems with odor-specific anosmias where you just have an inability to smell a particular odor. And that does happen in humans. So it might be that you would never detect an odor in the traditional testing method, but in his method, there are other odors in there you can detect. So it's not actually been commercially marketed yet. He's working on it. And unfortunately, I think that the marketing that he's been going with is cell phone-based, which is not going to work in a field setting. And I've been talking to him about that. There are ways that we could potentially get these odors into the sniff and sticks, which is the tool we've been using. And I think that would be really a great way to go. But another problem with that is that it's not really been validated yet in labs as an effective tool. So I think it's probably good, but I think probably in the field, we would try to do a shortened version of the longer discrimination and sensitivity testing. And then maybe if there's time and our participants don't get incredibly bored, <laughs> also try the odor mixture testing, you know, at least in a small set of more interested people and see if we can cross-validate that way. I do want to actually return this hairy hypothesis because you did mention that. <laughs> so we obviously have retained, humans have retained apocrine glands, as I'm sure you both know, in various limited places in our bodies. And those are areas where we emit very strong odors and very personal odors, you know, the axillary area, the pubic area, and the head. And so obviously hair does capture smell and it gives us kind of a repository of our own personal scent. So there is something to do with hair and smell, but the diffusion of it in terms of the nose itself, and that might mean that you have more odors collecting in your nose if you've got a hair ear nose with age. <laughs> and maybe it's too much and maybe your olfactory system starts to shut down because it's getting overstimulated. Well, thank you for throwing me that bone. It makes me think too, one of the sort of elephants in the room here that we haven't mentioned is the stinky t-shirt model that's been sort of tested to death, but more like let's validate this cool evolutionary psychology study and less problematizing. And the MHC compatibility model is another sort of term for it. And there have been some recent studies you mentioned that have sort of poo-pooed it. And I have students who are looking at like, well, maybe we also smell other things like stress. Maybe it's not that we're attracted to, we're held. But I just find it so interesting that there are so many different avenues that are understudied. And, and I wonder what's next for you? How are you looking to expand? We have a lot of students who listen too. So I'm sort of curious from your perspective, what are the obvious hypotheses that still need to be tested? What is your next plan? Are you recruiting students? I think probably the primary thing we need to do is get a lot of field data from a variety of populations, have a broader representation also in our Western populations from a variety of settings, 
field-based data, not lab data. So we understand how our olfactory systems operating in the settings in which we do our daily work. So we understand not what's perfect in a lab for a diagnosis, but what's a baseline in various environments. So that's kind of a primary goal to start doing some of that data collection. And I did have a grant to do some of it in Tanzania, but COVID-19 has put that to a halt for now. So I'm not sure when we'll get to the field. And unfortunately, we've already bought our supplies, which will be expiring very soon. So I don't know what we'll do. But anyway, hopefully it will be done in the next year or so. And we want to expand that. And this is with the main co-author on the paper in AJHB, Colette Burbesque. We want to expand to other groups and work with other people who have an interest in this. And I've been talking to the colleague I mentioned who did the study in Africa about potentially getting some additional data there. I've been talking to colleagues in Kenya about collecting data as well in different populations. So that's kind of the next big thing. The hypothesis that I'm most interested in testing is this genetic versus environment. So there's genetic data suggesting that hunter-gatherers have olfactory enrichment in their genes, they express more olfactory receptors and that they must therefore have a better sense of smell. There's language data saying that they have enriched language for smells, therefore they must have a better sense of smell. But we don't really know, and I don't think we can use this data to assume they do. So I'd like to know if in fact they do. And so that's the big hypothesis that I'm hoping some of my field data will test. And I don't know, I mean, I suspect it's more environmentally driven. It's a highly adaptive sense. It's plastic and it modulates itself up and down in you know, response to environmental conditions anyway. So I have a feeling that genetics play a role in our perceptual experiences of it, but I'm not sure how much they play a role in our ability to smell overall. So I'd say that's kind of a big thing. I'd also like to do some more urban work based on pollution. One of the interesting things related to COVID-19 is that SARS-CoV-1 as well as 2 have attached themselves to pollution, particulate matter, PM 2.5 and 10, and outbreaks of COVID, particularly in Italy, have been directly linked to massive pollution events. That's traditionally also with respiratory disease in general. So we're not something that has made the news rounds like (laughs) you do not see that talked about. That's really fascinating. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, too, because one of the things that I talk about when I'm thinking about the applied outcomes of my research is that there's a, a really very robust and interesting body of work done showing brain damage in both dogs and humans in polluted environments. So it's a natural way for pollution to literally enter the body and pass into the brain because the olfactory tract starts in the nose where the receptors bind the odorants and the pollution, but no one quite knows yet how the pollution is transmitted, but it is found even in the olfactory bulb. And in children growing- plate of the ethmoid bone. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's all about the ethmoid bone. I mean, and that can, and the cribriform plate. Yeah. So these are kind of really interesting also ways that maybe we could eventually think about smell in the past. And I've got a little project that I want to work on with that. And that also could be a great student project. But I think that these are really important questions because children who are growing up in polluted environments are at greater risk of respiratory disease, which is why we see links with asthma in polluted environments. But yet everybody just talks about the asthma, not the damage caused by the pollution. And it also leads to cognitive impairment. So we're dealing with some really very problematic issues that are not being addressed today. And so I'm really interested in bringing that out more in some ways in my research and just, you know, when I'm having conversations like this that are more informal about what we can do, what's the significance of it, why is it important. Individuals with a depressed sense of smell tend to be depressed. They tend to be anxious. They tend to have smaller social networks. They tend to have fewer sexual partners. Men who lose their sense of smell complain about missing the smell of sex. People lose interest in food or they're so desperate to eat and enjoy food that they eat more fats, they eat more salts, they eat more crunchies. So we have so many widespread health effects with that. And 
it's just increasingly important now with more and more pandemics coming our way, I think. You've literally just totally blown my mind. <laughs> Seriously. I don't usually say that because usually I have a question in mind and I'm full pause. I'm glad you mentioned dogs because I was thinking like an obvious comparison is dogs. Whenever I'm walking my dog, I'm just trying to imagine what his sensory world must be like. He's sniffing everything and I wonder taking in this whole visual aura and when the grass is greener, it sort of feels transcendent to me and I'm wondering if he's having a, a smell sensory explosion, but it never occurred to me that pollution that burns my nose, and I think I thought about it a little bit when I've seen street dogs in some of these urban centers I've been where I've had such a strong reaction to the heavy pollution that it's burned my eyes and nose, but it's metaphorically frying their brains and that that's going to have some cognitive... And I mean, I think, Chris, when you and I went to the AAAs a couple of years ago in San Jose during one of the massive forest fires, Everyone was complaining about burning eyes, nose, and we were blowing black junk out of our noses. Never once did we think about the long-term cognitive effects that might have. So yeah, you have blown our noses and minds today, Kara. This has been great. All the puns. Anyway, (laughs) anyway, so we like to end our podcast interviews, which I'm actually kind of sad that we have to end it because I think Chris and I have both learned Oh, much today of things we did not know about, which is another testament to how understudied and talked about the nose and sense of smell are. But we like to end our interviews with asking the fun question. What do you do in your fun time? And even if that includes like academic reading, that's okay because we do that too. Well, I love physical activity and in Alaska, I'll ski every day if it's above negative 15 degrees Fahrenheit. My cutoff used to be negative 20, but now I do negative 15. So that's cross-country skiing. You can go out into the backcountry and it's beautiful and bring my friend's dog with me and we'll go for miles and yeah, it's lovely. I can't do that in Lexington. So here I like to just take really long walks, bike rides. We have beautiful horse country and lots of trails where you get to go out into the farmlands and it's really nice. I love reading science fiction. The TV show that I love most recently based on a science fiction plot was Dark, if you've seen it or not seen it. It's a German show. It's got three seasons. It's about time travel, multiple timelines. It's really fascinating. If you've got a really good memory, you can keep track of everyone. But if you don't, then you know you might need to refer to the timelines they put online. And I've even, I've even got to combine my love of science fiction with academics by writing a little science fiction story that was published in a book called How to Run a City Like Amazon and Other Fables that was taking a critical look at data privacy and so on. Yeah, so those are kind of some of the things I like to do. I'm trying to think of a good book that I've read recently, but it's been all academic stuff, not fun stuff. I thought for sure we were going to get another recommendation for The Expanse, which both Chris and I love. You know, I've tried to get into that. You know, my co-author on this paper, Colette, she loves it. She recommended it to me. But there's just something about it that stops me. The idea is brilliant. Well, the fact that it will be nine books by 2021 and each book is over like 530 pages, that would stop a lot of people. It's a commitment to get through the series. But it is excellent. I adore it. Well, now I haven't read the books. Oh, yeah, no, so I've been reading the books before the show came out, but I'm on book eight now, and book nine, and that which is the final, comes out in March this coming year, or April. It's coming out soonish. I have a problem with losing my attention span, so I lost my attention span on this, the expanse to show. I've heard recommendations for the dark as well, so I'm going to have to go and check that out. I do like stories that are involved enough that I need a guide. Right. So the Malazan uh, Empire series, I need to reread the whole thing because I lose track of what's going on. Same type of thing, but written by anthropologists. So it makes me feel like I'm doing work at the same time, even though I'm totally not. 
but we want to thank you. This has been amazing. Can I do like a little final plug for a paper that I'm about to submit on Friday? This is probably the biggest paper of my career. I've worked with a biochemist to recreate Neanderthal and Denisovan olfactory receptors in a lab and test what they smell. And it's amazing. We've been working on this for quite some time. We tested over 30 different genes and all the variants on them, and we compare them to humans and we compare them to all kinds of stuff. So we are getting ready to have people pre-review it, and then we're going to drop it on BioArchive probably on Friday. Awesome. That seems like a heavy lift. Yeah, we're smelling through noses that haven't smelled for over 30,000 years. These fossilized cribriform plates, what are you going to (laughs) do? Anyway, Carrie, it has been an absolute delight. We definitely look forward to that paper. As someone who has a paper accepted on Neanderthal cold climate adaptations, I look forward to seeing what you say about the noses. That might be an interesting thing to include. Yeah, so thank you so, so much again. Great, yeah, thank you both for inviting me. It's been fun. And just as a last note, how do people find out more about you? What's your easiest contact info? Twitter, email, website? Twitter and email, kchoover at alaska.edu. And Twitter, Kara C. Hoover. There you go. Kara with a K. Kara with a K. (laughs) 